0: We we'll want to just bring our final message uh in terms of the series we've been doing around the book of revelation and the letters to the seven churches that we find in revelation and uh if you've been journeying with us uh, you'll know where we're up to and if you haven't can i encourage you to get onto our website and get onto the podcast and have a listen to the messages that have been going through this series because it really has been powerful to hear God not only speak to the church 2000 years ago but that same voice is relevant for us today and so one thing we've been doing as we've been looking at this is this is sort of the format we've been using that in each letter there is um, a, a mention of who Jesus is followed by a commendation and then a complaint and correction and then a promise and what we find this morning with the church in Laodicea is that there is no commendation for them. It's the only church that gets no commendation. And it's actually the harshest complaint out of the seven, but it finishes with, I reckon, the best promise. And so we're going to unpack that together this morning. The uh, church in Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, extremely wealthy, uh, extremely wealthy, uh, in fact, famous for its banking establishments, its medical school, its textiles industry, um, and all those things just brought affluence to the city. In fact, uh, just like Philadelphia last week, that was destroyed in an earthquake in, in AD 17, um, Laodicea was destroyed in that year as well, and then they rebuilt, and then it was destroyed again in AD 60, and just like if we had a, a, a massive uh, issue, uh, whether it's a cyclone or earthquake or something, our government would give money to rebuild cities and areas. These guys were so rich, they just said to Rome, no, nah, don't need your money, we'll sort out ourselves. Like money was not an issue for the people in Laodicea, for the church in Laodicea. And so just keep that in mind as we work through, and we're just going to work through verse by verse. So the first thing we see here, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. There's our titles for Jesus, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The NLT translation puts that last phrase and says, uh, the beginning, Jesus, the beginning of God's new creation. And that's a beautiful picture as well. The Amen, the one who stays true to his word. In other words, it shall be as he says. Amen. And it reflects God's faithfulness and his authority that he has in the world. Now this letter that John is writing through the revelation he's receiving to this church, um, some of the stuff even mentioned right now would have been really familiar to them. Because they would have received a town just down the road, was this town called Colossae. And we know in the Bible there's a letter to the Colossians. And they would have received this letter and known about this letter. And there's a few things in that letter to the Colossians, a few phrases that, when you just look at it, you know, God, the firstborn over all creation, the ruler of the new creation, the ruler of all creation says a bit further, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, the first to be resurrected. We're going to follow in that, that pathway that Jesus has inaugurated through his own bodily resurrection. It goes on, we've got stuff saying, and through him he reconciles to himself all things. He's renewing creation. This is the creator God that Jesus is declaring himself to be at the beginning of this letter. And it follows on, and, and you, if you, um, you'll be without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, continue and stand firm in your faith, then Jesus is going to be there and the promises are going to come through. And it continues on, he says, this is Paul writing to this church, he says, to this end, Paul, he strenuously contends with all the energy Christ's working in him. Now I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea, for they have not met me personally. And listen to the language. My goal Paul says is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So even this language of riches and treasures, that the church in Laodicea would have had copies of this letter read to them over potentially a few decades, but they've ignored it. They've put their riches and their treasures in material possessions, not the person of Jesus, not the relationship with Jesus. And it doesn't go well for them. Towards the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians he even says, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and after this letter's been read to you, see that it's read to them as well. So they were without excuse. They had been communicated to about what it means to be the church, to have Jesus central and they let that slide, they let other things get in the way. So as we continue on, the next phrase, I know your deeds. Listen to this. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Let that just sit for a second. I mentioned this to the church, about the church in Sardis, about um, you know you think you're alive but really you're dead. Imagine receiving that letter. Imagine receiving this letter. I know your deeds, you're neither cold nor hot. And because you're lukewarm, I'm just gonna, some translations say I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now just think about practically, there's nothing better than a cold drink on a hot day. For those who drink coffee, you want your coffee hot, not lukewarm. On a cold day, whether it's a coffee or a hot chocolate or something, you want it hot, not lukewarm. Generally, generally, we like our drinks, our physical drinks, hot or cold, generally speaking. Something that's lukewarm, we might go as far as to actually spit it out. And there's this image that's been painted here that Jesus is saying. Um, this idea, you can actually be lukewarm as a follower of Jesus and not realise you're lukewarm. Think about that. Those who are lukewarm may not realise they are lukewarm. And then he's got this statement in here that outright denial would actually be preferable than this half-hearted commitment. "I, I would rather you were one or the other, Jesus is saying. Either be hot or be cold, don't be in the middle somewhere. To profess Christianity whilst remaining untouched by its transforming power and remaining disobedient to what Jesus calls us to is actually disgusting to Jesus to the point where he would want to just spit that out. Let's not lose the gravity of what's being said here. Now, in a practical sense, this would have made sense to, to the church because, I'll do it up here, we've got Laodicea here. Just above Laodicea is, is this city, Hierapolis, and just below it is Colossae. Now, Laodicea had no natural water, so they had to bring water in. And so at Hierapolis are these hot mineral springs. And the Romans were pretty clever, so they would conduct all this piping and aqueducts, and they would bring in this hot water from Hierapolis. But by the time it traveled about the five miles to get to Laodicea, it was no longer hot, it was just tepid, lukewarm. But then below them at Colossae, just near Colossae, there were these mountains where they would get some snow and the, and the snowmelt, the pure fresh snowmelt water would come down and again, they piped it. But in the heat in summer in modern day Turkey, that water went from being cool and fresh to lukewarm. So wherever they sourced their water from, by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. And that's disgusting. Can't really drink it. The stuff coming from the hot mineral spas had a lot of minerals in it, so you couldn't really drink that either. So just the language Jesus is using, they're going, I get this. This makes sense in our practical access to water itself. And you're saying something, Jesus, that that sort of now we're sort of applying spiritually. What do we do with that? This is one of the keys to this letter, this image of being lukewarm. Now the source of your drinking water has an impact physically, but the source of our spirituality, the source of our life spiritually, our very existence, our purpose, our security, our identity... Our motivations, they can only be found in Jesus if we profess to be a Christian. They can't be found in anything else. So I've just written a question here for myself more than anyone, but what is my source? What is my source? My source of meaning, my source of identity, my source of purpose, my source of security, what is my source? What is your source? Now Jesus uses a few titles for himself, particularly in John's Gospel and I love this, this one here where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he's saying you know, you'll keep getting thirsty if you keep drinking this water but there's a water that's available to you and you'll never thirst again and And he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, the thing which would be most important in somebody's life. Yes, we need physical water to survive physically. But even beyond that, Jesus is saying there's something more important than the physical water. Relationship with me through the Holy Spirit. And so in this letter to the church, it goes on, says, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Wow. So first of all, this church gets that you're just lukewarm and it's disgusting. But then you are boasting that you're actually rich. But the reality is, no, you're not. You're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind and you're naked. Now, this is the church receiving this. How many times do we hear in scripture that I once was blind and now I'm still blind? No, and we don't sort of get that. I once was blind, but now I can see. And Jesus is saying to these people who are part of this church, no, you're still blind. There hasn't been the life come into you through the Spirit that you might think there is, because you don't have Jesus at the centre. You are rich. Do, do, Do you sit here this morning, please don't answer this, and ever think of yourself, I'm rich? Woke up this morning and you go, you know what? Gee, I'm rich. (laughs) Look in the mirror, how are you doing? You're looking good. You're rich. I reckon generally we don't think of ourselves that way. Because we compare. There's always someone else who has more than what we have. 53% of the world, according to worlddata.info, lives on less than $2 per day, 53% of the world. If I had a $2 coin, and I held it up, I was gonna do this, but I forgot to bring one, and I held it up and said, here's $2, who wants it? I reckon most of you wouldn't budge. In fact, I would have been really surprised if anyone even attempted to get out of their seat for $2. Martin might okay, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Two dollars. <laughs> According to this same worlddata.info, there's only 42 countries in the world out of about 200 countries whose average wage is above $30 a day. About 20% of the countries in the world whose average wage is above $30 a day. Are you rich? According to investopedia.com, looked important when I saw it. Never heard of it prior to that. 32 and a half grand a year. If you're earning 32 and a half grand a year, you're in the top 1% of earners in the world. Are you rich? I love how the church in Smyrna that we looked at a few weeks ago where Jesus said to them, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Rich spiritually. And he's saying to this church in Laodicea, you think you're rich, but you're not. You might have stuff, but stuff means nothing. Being rich is actually a disadvantage spiritually. A comment I've often made in this role to people is that this is a pretty hard culture to spread the gospel because generally we don't need God. We are self-sufficient. And people will often ask me, why do we hear about and see about some miraculous stuff happening in the church in in Southeast Asia and in Africa and these places where there's severe physical poverty, but God seems to be doing these miracles and maybe there's a sense of spiritual richness in those areas, maybe. But the three terms that that are used here, you realize you are poor. Remember, Laodicea is famous for its banking establishments. And he says, no, you're poor. He says, you're naked. Laodicea was famous for its textile industries where this expensive black wool was woven into cloaks and coats and, and the, the, the was, it was the prize sort of Armani type gear. You know, it was the designer label stuff, the black wool from Laodicea, but you're naked. And then he says, but you're blind as well. And, and one of the things about the medical schools in Laodicea were really famous for this eye salve, this, this stuff which would treat eye conditions. I love how Jesus just gets to the point with what they would understand. You're poor, you're naked and you're blind. As Jesus teaches about this stuff, here's a story you might be aware of. You know, some guy asked Jesus you know, what he has to do to inherit eternal life and Jesus has a bit of a conversation with him about keeping the commandments. He said, I've done all that and so Jesus says, well, there's only one thing left to do, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have riches in heaven, then come and follow me. And this was the last thing this guy expected to hear because he was rich and became terribly sad Because he was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. Love that phrase. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. And so seeing his reaction, Jesus said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven? I would say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then so they say, well, who has any chance? His disciples. No chance at all, Jesus says, if you think you can pull it off by yourself. But every chance in the world, if you trust God, to do it. And then Peter tried to sort of bring himself back in. He goes, Well, we've left everything for you. What's in it for us? And Jesus said, Well, you won't regret it. No one who's who's given up their house, their spouse, their brothers, sisters, parents, children, whatever, you won't lose out. In fact, you'll have it multiplied many times in this, in this lifetime. And then there's eternal life as well. Jesus was able to converse with this person and realise where their true treasure was and challenge that. Just like he's doing to the church in Laodicea. Where is your true treasure? Now, just following this in Luke's Gospel is the story of Zacchaeus. Remember, they've said, well, how is this possible? How can we do this? If it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, what's the point? And then just the next couple of verses, there's this guy called Zacchaeus who was rich, a tax collector. He was ripping off everyone he could, and he just would have been filthy rich. And Jesus Shows the impossible being done through Zacchaeus, that it is possible for a rich person to come into the kingdom of heaven if they understand their priority and what's going on. And Jesus actually goes and eats at Zacchaeus's house. And we read in Luke 19, he was passing through Jericho, and Zacchaeus was there, he was very wealthy. And when Jesus reached that, he looked up at him, he was in a tree because he was a short guy, couldn't see properly. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down, I must stay at your house today. So he came down and welcomed Jesus and all the people saw this and began to mutter that he's going to be the guest of a sinner but Zacchaeus stood up at that point because he realises something in Jesus is far more valuable to him than anything else and he says, check this out, I give half my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anyone I'm going to pay them back four times what I owe them. Now he's a good Jewish man because that was one of the customs back in the old law that if you, know, if, if, if you stole somebody's sheep, you had to pay them back with four sheep. So he's going, oh, I'll try to do the right thing here. Four times I'll give back. And then Jesus' response, today salvation has come to this house. He is a rich person who has realised that having Jesus is far more important than stuff. So as we continue on, in the letter to the church in Laodicea, it says here, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So there's our three things again, poor, blind and naked. And he's addressing these three areas. Buy gold from me, Jesus says. Stuff you can't purchase anywhere else. Gold that is refined in the fire in Scripture refers to character development. Maybe our position in Christ could be more overt, more central, more uh, important to us when we realise that some of the pressures that come in life actually build character. We often think that money and unlimited access to money will take problems away from us. Jesus would actually say to us, no, let let me shape you, let me mould you, let me make something out of you. Buy from me gold refined in the fire. Then he says white garments, white garments, opposite of the black woolly garments that were popular in the city. And we discussed last week that the white clothing often refers to the righteous acts of the people who are part of the church, those who are overcoming. Let me clothe you, Jesus says, in my character. And then the eye salve, anoint so you can see. Instead of being blinded by stuff and your affluence and your wealth, actually start to see where the real wisdom and treasures lie. So here's Jesus again, pointing it out. Refined gold because you're poor, white clothes because you're naked, eye salve because you're blind. You know, wealth and luxury and ease, and comfort, those things we often chase after, make people feel confident, and satisfied, and complacent. The pleasures of this world, money, security, material possessions, they can actually be dangerous because their temporary satisfaction makes us indifferent to God. Like I said, we often feel we don't even need him because we're self-sufficient. And God's offering this heavenly, this eternal, this lasting satisfaction. But we, we are so temporal, we, we can't even look to that because we're blinded by what's immediately in front of us. And so Jesus continues the letter and he says, well, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline So be earnest and repent. I love this, how it's starting to just come around now. Jesus, let me point out that you are lukewarm. And let me point out that that's disgusting. And let me point out that you're chasing after the wrong things because they have no eternal value. And I'm pointing it all out because I actually love you. I love you so much, I won't let you sit in that place. Now parental love, we we discipline and correct our children because we know that it will benefit them in the long run. God as our good heavenly father disciplines and corrects us because he knows it's going to be good for us in the long run. We discipline our own children out of love for them, wanting what's best for them. And we've got to have that picture of God in this same case. God actually wants what's best for us and will help point it out when we are blinded to it. God's purpose in discipline is actually not to punish us, it's to bring us back into relationship with him. It's not a sense of punishment, it's a sense of correction, it's a sense of moulding, it really is love. I care for you so much, I won't let you stay like this. So even when we are not faithful to him, he is faithful to us. When the church that bears his name is not living according to what he's called us to live, uh, he loves us enough to go, and I'm going to call that and I'm going to correct it. So here's the next little passage that is probably most familiar with this letter. And so Jesus is saying, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I stand at the door and knock. I love that image because Jesus is saying, I'm not going to burst in and force myself on you. I'm not going to make you do this. You have a choice in this. This picture of dining and eating, it's a deep, intimate fellowship that Jesus is saying, I want that intimate fellowship with you. The greatest honour in those days, and even today where it's still relevant, is to eat and dine with the king or the queen. And Jesus is saying, that's available to you if you will open the door. There's an image that you might be familiar with. This painting, it's called The Light of the World painting by William Holman Hunt. It was painted in about the 1850s. And the story goes that when this started to become popular, a a student or a critic at some point said to Mr. Holman, hang on, the painting is actually unfinished. There's no handle on the door. And he said, that's intentional. The handle is on the inside. It's only the person on the inside who has the ability to to choose to open that door up as Jesus is knocking. It's a great picture. Now Jesus wants to be in relationship with us. He's not pushy. He's patient. He's persistent. He's pursuing us. But he allows us to decide whether we would invite him in and do life with him or not. And then... To the one who is victorious, and here's the promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Those who conquer, those who overcome, those who live a victorious life, those who don't submit to the the pleasures of the world and, and replace God with stuff, we are going to sit with Jesus on his throne and rule with him over the redeemed creation. Can you get your head around that? Now the throne is this image in Revelation. 45 times it talks about the throne. And Jesus on the throne is a major image right through the book of Revelation. And he is saying, I will share that with you. When we go right back to the beginning of the biblical story and we're in the book of Genesis, listen to some of the language that God created us human beings to rule over all of creation, to reign over all of creation. And Jesus is saying that was the original purpose. And it went wrong. And because of my love for you, I'm doing everything I can to bring it back. And the end result is you are going to sit with me on my throne and rule again over the redeemed, renewed, reconciled creation. I reckon that's the best promise out of the seven promises. Remember some of the promises? You're going to get a stone with your name written on it. That's pretty cool. But you're going to sit on a throne? And rule with Jesus? Oh, Here's a promise, if you overcome, you'll get a white robe to wear. Yeah, it's nice, but you're going to sit on the throne? Can you imagine it? And it finishes, as do all letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I would suggest that we need to heed this letter. We need to look at the church in Laodicea and be willing to see ourselves in that spot. We are rich. The deceitfulness of wealth, material possessions, things we place our security and our value and identity in are quite often things other than Jesus Christ. Even for people in the church. We often live for comfort over Jesus. And my summary of all this as I've I've said in this is, am I really willing to believe that having Jesus is better than anything else? Because if I am, my life will reflect that. Our life will reflect that. Our community will reflect that. Are we really willing to believe that if we truly have Jesus, that we actually have everything we need? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for the strength of your words because they come through love love for us, your desire for us to to truly live into the best way we can live as human beings and that is in deep intimate relationship with you, our triune God, Father, Son and Spirit and in relationship with one another. Where those fruits of the Spirit are so evident, where there's peace and patience and joy and kindness So I pray we would have the courage to receive receive your words to us where relevant, Have have the courage to actually face the way we are sometimes, own it, but repent from it, turn from it, and be a people who just want to have Jesus. God I pray as individuals as a church as part of the church in the world we could shift from being like the church in Laodicea to being like the church in Smyrna where even if we don't have much physically we have you let that be enough for us let that shape us To be the kind of church that you are desperate to come back for. That is radiant and without spot and without wrinkle. Whereas a loving groom, you are just saying, I'm preparing my bride. To spend eternity with her. Would you help us in that place, God? Amen.